0: Heavenly Father, we come before you, God, and we just ask for a lot of grace tonight, God, that you would come here on a Wednesday night and repair us, God, that you would come and um, strengthen us, God, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit, God, that you would come and be light and life, God, and that our lives would reflect the God that we know and serve. Um, Help us know you better, God. I just come against any preconceptions in my own heart, God, or any preconceptions here that would block us from your glory, that would block us from seeing you as you really are, God, and ask you to forgive us if in any way we've ever made you something that you're not, God, that you would tear down the things that we've built up that you haven't put there, God, and that you would build up things that you want, God, and that you would strengthen the things that you've put in our lives, God, that anything that's been neglected, God, I ask you just to restore. Anything that's been broken, God, I ask you to fix it back the way you want it, God, I thank you that you are a sovereign God and that you're involved in every moment of every day of our lives, God, and nothing falls outside of your, your scope of awareness, God, nothing falls outside of your plan, and I thank you for that, God. We, we place our, ourselves in your hands tonight, God, and we ask that you would speak. Um, God, I ask you to just help me get out of the way, God, so that your Holy Spirit can speak. I ask you to... Uh, just help me surrender and uh, hear your voice, God, so that your people can hear your voice, God, and we can all all glorify you better and know you better, God. And Just be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. If you can uh, open your Bibles to Romans 8, starting in verse 26, it says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He searches our hearts, and He knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called, and these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified." What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who shall be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather He who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress Persecution, our famine, our nakedness, our peril, our sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you can go back to verse 26 where we started. I want to start in verse 26 and verse 27. It says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. And in reading this, I think Paul starts in a really good place, and that's acknowledging our weakness. If we can't, It says, for we do not know how to pray as we should. If we are a people so helpless on our own that we don't even know which prayer to pray. And I think anybody that's knelt to pray before knows the confusion, knows you're praying but you're not sure for what. And sometimes when you pray and the, the answer doesn't come the way you expected it to. For we don't even know how to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And then he who searches the heart that's God knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the Word of God. And that's our hope. Because we, if we don't even know which prayer to pray, do you think we know which direction to take or which way to plot the course of our life or what our priorities should be? But it says the Spirit Himself prays for us according to the perfect will of God. And I I think when we read verses like this, we should actively engage our faith. Either that's true or it's not. Either right now the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf, perfectly according to the will of God, or He's not. And if He is, and I think by faith we reach out and we say, God, I don't know what Your will is, and I don't know what to pray but you know what I need. And I'll accept what the Holy Spirit is interceding for me. And get the, get the passion in this verse when he says, with groanings too deep for words. We, Jeff was talking about the Holy Spirit. It's a person. He's a person. And he's invested in you becoming what God wants you to be. He prays for us according to the will of God. I just want to encourage you guys, I want to start right there because I want to encourage you guys, before we go any farther, before we look at God's word and we, and we see, see things that we need to believe and we see things that he wants us to have and, we, and we, we see promises that we'd love to see in our life, I want to remind you guys that it's not by works of righteousness which we have none, but according to his mercies, he saved us. This Christianity thing begins, Christianity begins and ends in a work of God. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you to think that you could start by faith and finish with works? And whenever we stare at God's Word, whenever it stares back at us and tells us things that makes us uncomfortable, we just thank God that there's a Holy Spirit in our our behalf that can overcome our weakness. He helps our weakness, for we don't know what to pray, but the Holy Spirit knows what to pray. And so if you believe that tonight, just sitting where you're at, I just encourage you just to release your faith for those situations in our our lives right now that we don't understand, those things that God might be requiring from us that, that maybe we're even trying to do, but it feels like failure. I want you to release your faith to believe that right now the Holy Spirit is interceding on your behalf. Because it says it right here, and it's either true or it's false, but if it's true, then that's great hope. It's great hope. So here we are in our weakness. Unsure of even even what to pray, let alone how to accomplish what the prayer is. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. And so then we move down to verse 28 to 30. And here we see God's will. Because it says that the Spirit prays according to the will of God. It's not an aimless prayer. It's not a... Just just give them bunny rabbits and sunshine. It's according to the will of God. So the will of God is a particular thing. If the Holy Spirit only prays according to the will of God, then there's some things He will pray, and there's some things He will not pray. Because everything He does, He prays according to the will of God. So in verses 28 to 30, I think Paul just goes right on to tell us He prays according to the will of God. Here's the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son that they would be firstborn among many that he would be the firstborn among many brethren and these whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and these whom he justified he also glorified that's the will of God to take you from where you're at and make you like his son Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. What did he predestine them to? When I say I predestined something, that means I make something or build something for a particular purpose. And for you, he foreknew you for a purpose. And your purpose was to be conformed to his son. Why? So that you could live a good life? No. So that his son could be the firstborn among many brethren. So there would be a lot more like Jesus, his son in whom I am well pleased. You know, in Hebrews it says he's the exact representation of his Father. That was Jesus, was his exact representation. And this work here is us becoming the representation of Jesus Christ. And that's the will of God. But I want to kind of zero in on the end game. And what's the last thing on this list? It's glorified, right? I want you all to act like your Pentecostals for five seconds. Turn to your neighbor and say "glory." <laughs> there you go. I thought Paul's group'd be louder than that, but uh, <laughs> but so that's that's the that's the end game. The message for my title is just "glory" with an exclamation point. Make sure to put the exclamation point on there. But but this work takes us from who we are to what He wants us to be for glory. He also glorified. Uh, I was going to call on somebody in my theology class from back at Pleasureville, but I won't won't test anyone since it's been a while. But for my class, you should know what is the chief end of man. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, right? So those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is a really, really loaded phrase. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's a sentence that comes really easy off the tongue, and it's been around for 1,700 years approximately. But when you really stop and think, the chief end of man is to glorify God... What does that mean? What do we mean when we say glory? I mean, it's all over the Bible, right? It's all Jesus comes down in his glory, people walk in glory. What, what are we talking about when we say glory? I think it was Mr. Hamilton who coined the phrase that nobody minds you telling them the truth. It's when you define what you mean when you tell them the truth that it gets offensive. And I think we have to be careful not to just assent, make mental assent to this idea, okay, the chief men of man is glorified by God and enjoy him forever. What's next? Because here It's the end game. It's the end result of everything that Jesus does in your life is glory. So why is that? But I think before we ask why is that, we have to look at the chief end of man is to glorify God because in that statement is a very simple but unsurmountable problem. And that's this, that we can't glorify God. And there's two reasons why we can't glorify God. The first thing is that the creation is always less than the creator. There is, no, there is no creation that's as great as its creator was. No piece of art tells us everything that there is to know about the artist. There's no way to, that I know of that a, uh, someone can create something that's greater than they are. I could think of a supercomputer who might be smarter at crunching numbers, but we all know that there's no way that a computer at crunching numbers is actually greater than a human is actually greater than the ability to reason and think. And so we find ourselves, how do we glorify God? We are His creation. He is the Creator. We are less than He is. For me to glorify something means for me to tell you what a thing is worth. And if I am worth less than the thing that I am telling you about, I can't accurately portray the glory of the thing that I'm telling you about, right? So we're lesser. The second point is that we're poor examples of what Jesus is like. And kind of as an illustration, you all know who Babe Ruth is. But imagine if you'd never heard the name Babe Ruth and you didn't have any idea who Babe Ruth was. You didn't know he had all these records. You didn't know he is maybe. I don't know. I don't follow baseball that closely to know. But I think, I guess he's supposed to be the greatest baseball player of all time. Let's just play like you'd never heard of him and you didn't know who Babe Ruth was. And I walked into your baseball diamond and I said, you guys, I trained under Babe Ruth and Babe Ruth is awesome. Let me tell you about Babe Ruth and all he taught me. What would be the first thing you guys would want to do? We're all competitive enough around here. We know you. Grab the bat, big boy. Let's see what you can do, right? What happens when I'm a poor representation of Babe Ruth? Then suddenly, you don't think Babe Ruth is so awesome, do you? Because I stepped up to the plate with the bat in my hand, and I said, Babe Ruth looks like me. (laughs) You don't want that. Poor Babe Ruth. But here's the thing about glory, guys. It is the essential thing. Just flip back to Romans 1. Because this isn't an optional, okay, well, you got me. I'm not going to glorify God. This is the the thing that God requires. Start in verse uh, 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why is he angry with the ungodliness and the righteousness of men? See, we say that God's unra- angry against the unrighteousness, but God says He's angry against the unrighteousness because... It's because men suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. From the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse... For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. And that's why Paul writes later in 1 Corinthians, whatever you do in word or in deed, do all to the glory of God. See, it's God's glory that God is particularly and mostly concerned about. And that's why the old theologian said, the chief end of man is to glorify God because they had read their Bibles. And the glory of God is the first and foremost fact of the Bible. Go through all the Old Testament accounts. What was God mainly concerned about? It was his glory. What was his saints mostly concerned about? What did Moses say when God said, Step aside, I'll wipe out this nation and start with another one. Moses wasn't concerned about himself. And he wasn't concerned about the people. He said, What will all the other nations say? If your people die out here, what will your name, what will be known about you as a God if you said, I'm going to save these people and then proved unable? It was God's glory. And that just goes right on through the entire Bible. Right down to His Son, Jesus Christ. In Romans 5, it says, He set Him forth as a propitiation. He set Him forth to show that God was righteous. In that moment on the cross, when Jesus Christ took our sins upon Himself, God the Father was proved righteous in His forbearance Of all those who had gone before, and all those that would follow, it's primarily God's glory that God's worried about. And it's primarily His glory which will be the balance on which our lives are weighed, the scale on which our lives are weighed. We make it about a lot of things, but God's mostly worried about His glory. So we come back to our problem. We're unable to glorify God. And the more we try, the the worse we make Him look. Even Jesus came and said, I don't seek my own glory. I don't speak my own words. I speak the words of Him who sent me because His glory, His glory is the thing. So what do we do? We're required to glorify God and yet in ourselves we see inability. We have to die. There's no other way. See, as long as we're alive, as long as our decisions are still the decisions we live by, as long as the way we want to live our life is the way we live our life, we are being a poor representation of the one who shed his blood to set us free. Until we say, Jesus, your will, not my will, we ignore the template that Jesus lived for us. The author and the finish of our faith said, live this way. Though he was equal with God, he did not consider that equality something to be held on to, but lowered himself and took on the form of a servant. We don't have a right to play around with God's glory. We don't have a right to tell other people, this is what God looks like and then live however we want. The name Christian still bears responsibility because every time we say Christian, we're telling the world, look at me, this is what Jesus is like. This is what God's glory is worth. And A.W. Tozer said, the church will never rise above its concept of God, and he was dead right. Because we lower God because the God of the Bible sometimes will make us uncomfortable. And so we lower God to look like us, and then we wonder why he's unattractive to the world. Jesus didn't have any trouble convincing the world of the attractiveness of his Father. But it was only because he was about the will of the Father. See, he doesn't need your help to look glorious, God's glorious all by himself. We have to die. See, this reason why this is what God has required from all time from Adam and Eve and in the fall we lost the ability to glorify God because we were no longer accurate representations of what he looked like we were no longer sinless creatures but that's why Jesus came Jesus came so that he could bring God's glory and show us what it looked like then he lived to show God was absolutely glorious and then he laid down his life so that we can die without fear he came back from the dead to prove that God accepted his work on our behalf so that brings it all back to us There's a work, there's a work of the cross that makes it possible for us to glorify God. But we must die. Christ has to begin to live through us or we won't ever begin to glorify Him. So I want to go back to our phrase, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I don't want to lose the phrase, it's not really the focus of the message, but and enjoy Him forever. Because it's a critical phrase because he's saying not only are we required to glorify God, but it is to be our deepest joy, our highest triumph. The most important thing in our life is to enjoy that relationship of us glorifying God. And if it sounds impossible, that's because it is impossible. That's why Jesus had to die, so that we could die and then live in him. So when we say the chief end, I want you guys to think about what, what comes to mind when you say the chief end. And for me, it's the, the ultimate destination, the, the absolute thing. There might be a million stops on your journey from here to California, but if you're going to California, your, California is your ultimate end. It's where you aim to go, okay? So when we say chief end, I think that's what they were referring to. And I kind of got this picture of, of, of Mount Everest. Mount Everest is, is pretty, pretty glorious. Um, but if I came to you and I said, I, I, hey, I just got back and I climbed Mount Everest, everybody would be like, sweet. But then what if, I, what if I went on to explain, well, I, I got to one of the base camps anyway, <coughs> I was on Everest, <laughs> but there was a base camp in a grassy meadow with some flowers, and I was on Everest. But well, see, guys, that's what we do when we make the chief end anything but glorifying God. Because reaching the base camp is no triumph. And, I, and, I, and in this picture, I, I just got a picture of all these base camps spread all over Everest. And there was, there was divine healing and speaking in tongues and salvation and outreach and social justice and racial reconciliation and all these things that were right on the way up to the top of the mountain. But so many people just stopped in these base camps because they had found what they had wanted on the way and they were always in it for themselves. We can't stay in those base camps, guys. That's not what Jesus died for. Jesus died for one reason, that He might be glorified in your life. And I mean that for the 10-year-olds, the 12-year-olds, the 16-year-olds, and the 55-year-olds and on up. Jesus died so that He could get glory from your life. He came down and He took on the form of a servant and He suffered all that He would suffer for one reason, so that you could take up in His suffering and bring His Father glory, so that you could display to the world the righteousness of God. We don't have a right to stop at a base camp because it's comfortable. We don't have a right to kick up our heels. What did Paul say at the end of his life? Busiest man ever. What did Jeff say? He walked 10,000 miles, but he wasn't done fighting yet. He said, I have fought the good fight, and I've finished the race. He said, I've fought as one not shadowboxing, not playing games, not messing around. I fought as one with a purpose. Why? What was the, what was the drive there? It was God's glory. See, if we're going to make our Christian life about a base camp, we're going to attain it early on in our Christianity and be stuck. And then we're going to sit in uneasy satisfaction. We'll we'll be satisfied because we, we are comfortable with our location. But we're going to be uneasy because up above us, we hear the voices of the saints that went before us. And we're always reading about these missionaries and these apostles that went out and they worked and they lived for Jesus. And our lives don't look anything like them. Because they made their life about the glory. The glory of Jesus Christ. And I'm afraid that lots of times we hear a message and we say, Yeah, I'm going to glorify Jesus Christ, but we have no idea how to put shoe rubber on that. We go out and we hit the road, and immediately the glory of God is in our rearview mirror to our family, our relationships, our jobs, and everything else we do. How often do we even think in a week that I'm going to glorify God today? That God will receive the reward of his suffering. That the Son will not have died in vain. That I will take part in the suffering of Christ so that the Father can get his glory. It was worth it for Paul. It was worth it for Jesus. So here's the thing. We're, I think what holds us in our, in our base camps as much as anything is just fear. Because we were young once. And we saw the mountaintop from a distance and we thought, man, I want that. Take me to the mountain, God. And we started hiking. And we fell down a few times. And we made a few failures. We made a few left turns. And then the kids came along and jobs and everything else and all the responsibilities of life. And we thought, you know what? This is, I'm on the mountain. I'm in Mount Everest. But God calls us to come up higher. Come up higher. There's no reason to rest in the base camp, guys. There's nothing down there. The triumph is in the glory that God gets from those saints who have ascended to the top. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Those with clean hands and a pure heart. And that is our Savior. But he takes us there. He takes us to the top. That's the work of the Savior. And I think lots of times it's the fear of failure that holds us in our base camp. We would step out for Jesus. We know we should step out for Jesus. We know that there's more to life. We know that there's purpose and there's hope. And there's all these things that Jesus wants to do in us and through us. And we know that he's good. But What if? And so we somehow find a way to convince ourselves that our current base camp is better than reaching the summit. Because at least it's safe down here. At least we've got a supply of water and we've got the Sherpas running up and down from the village and they'll keep us sustained right here. I don't know what I'm going to do when I get to the, how I get to the top. How would, I, how would I get taken care of up there? But Jesus says, if any man wants to follow me, he must first pick up his cross. If a man doesn't forsake everything, then he's not worthy to be my disciple. But I think Paul knew that's what we were facing, so he just goes right on. I'm a lot slower than Paul. If you go to 8.31, Paul says, Glory is this, this thing that's outside of us. We've seen it's bigger than us, and Paul knows that. So in verse 31, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who contemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? You see what Paul's saying right there? He's saying, trust Jesus. Who is it that's going to bring a charge against you? They are going to have to go before the judge that said you were justified in order to bring their case. Who is the one that condemns you? They have to go to He who died, who now sits at the right hand of God, and who is interceding on His behalf to present your case. How successful do you think your accuser will be to stand before the very God who justified you? Who said that person is just, and I've called that person, I've foreknew, and I've predestined, and I've called, and I've justified, and I'm going to glorify that person. Do you think the charges will stick? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, yeah, that's a high mountain. And yeah, it's a long ways. What have you got to lose? All the dangerous stuff's already been done. What do you think Paul said, oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? It's been swallowed up in victory. We have nothing to fear from Everest. Yes, the glory of God will absolutely daunt you when you go out and try to imagine how that would play out in your daily life. When we say heady topics like the glory of God on a Sunday morning and on a Monday morning, you're just late for work. (laughs) And yes, in your in and out days and the questions you have of, okay, God, I want to glorify you, but I don't know how and I'm scared to, and all these questions that pop into your mind, who is it that is going to bring a charge against God as elect? I think what Paul is saying is don't worry about it. What did Jesus tell the 70 that he sent them out? He said, go two by two, don't take extras, no extra money, no extra pouches, don't call the hotels in front of you, just go. And when he came back, he asked him, were you all taken care of? And not one of them was lacking anything. You're not going to outrun God in faithfulness. You're not going to outrun God in your obedience. God requires you to bring him glory. He sent His Son to enable you to bring Him glory. The Holy Spirit intercedes in your behalf so that you will be successful in bringing God glory. Don't even worry about packing up your base camp tents. Just start walking. Because there's more. See, if we make our life about glorifying Jesus, then there is no rest stops. There's no close enough and finish because Jesus isn't finished with us until He gets our whole life. So there's not, there's not a, an activity that we can jump... Uh, that we can check off. There's not an outreach that we can do. There's not a church service that we can attend. There's not a perfect amount of attendance that we can do to, to therefore say that we've done our Christianity bit because what he wants is his glory. And that's how you'll stand before him. And that's what he will look at. Because that was the precious blood of his son that he shed on your behalf to bring him glory. And your hang-ups and your personality quirks and your moods are poor excuses for not letting Jesus mold you into the image that he wants. But Paul goes on. He doesn't stop there. If he stopped there, that would, be, that would feel pretty good. <laughs> but he doesn't stop there. He says, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. You've been slaughtered recently? Remember the prerequisite for glory, right? See, it sounds as a nice spiritual phrase to say, I, "I've died with Christ, but it hurts a lot more when you go to work that out in daily life, doesn't it? We die." for your sake, all day long. See, God doesn't pick us up from our base camp and give us angel wings and lift us up to the top of Everest so that we can reside the rest of our days in happy bliss because how does he get glory from that? God tells you, you go, I'll empower you, but on the way you will die. It is a certain thing. And it will hurt with all the anguish that a physical death hurts. Are you willing to climb? See, that's God's glory. I heard a pastor say that Paul spent 12 chapters before he got to, Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of Christ, offer your bodies a living sacrifice. He spent 12 chapters telling you about the glory of God. I spent 29 minutes We've got to get before God and see His glory, or we'll never do it. You're not going to leave your base camp on a commitment or on a whim. You've got to get before God and see His glory. All the apostles did it. See, I don't know where our concept of happy, healthy, plump, and wise, and all peace and well on the home front came from. Where did we get that? Where did I get that? I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I'm asking, where did we get that idea? It wasn't the example of any of the Old Testament saints who were, went before us for our example. It wasn't the example of any of the apostles or of any of the early church fathers who all except for John were martyred in horrific ways. It's not the testimony of the church fathers who I believe, if I understand correctly, I think it was like 387 whenever they did the Nicene Creed. I've, I've read, I, I don't have any way to verify it, but they said that every, they had all the church fathers to agree on church doctrine, and every fa- church father in that room literally bore on their bodies the marks of persecution. Literally bore on their bodies the suffering. And because we live in America, do we think that we're exempt from the Word of God? Do we think that we're exempt from the walk? That God says that before we bear fruit, a kernel must fall to the ground and die. And how did we... Met- get our theology to package it in such a way as to make that death look attractive to say come to Jesus and he'll make everything better because Jesus said you're going to come to me unless a man pick up his cross unless he leave everything see I think If we don't look at the suffering, we don't need as glorious a Savior. And if we don't suffer, the world never sees how glorious our Savior is. God is most glorified in his Job's. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that says the stars shine brightest on the darkest night have we forgotten about job he said, there was no, not any but look at look at my servant job there's nobody on the world like him and i think in our in our american place we skim over passages that say job went out every morning and offered sacrifices for his children asking God to forgive anything they might have done. So do you think he was affected when all of his kids died? Do we think that he just had some superhero power by which that didn't rock his world? That everything he believed about God suddenly looked like a lie to everybody? That was God's man. On the earth at that time, not to compare him to Jesus Christ, but he was the apple of God's eye. He was the guy that when Satan came before God, he told Satan, look at that guy. He's got it together. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't say that about my life. So there's Job doing everything he can to serve God with all of his heart. If you go through and read the book of Job and just pick up the things he says about himself, that guy has some kind of character. He said, if I ever sat down to eat, he was a wealthy man. He said, if I ever sat down to eat and not invited those in who didn't have something to eat, have I ever seen the naked and not clothed them? Thousands of years later, what would James say that true religion looked like? That was Job. And if Job isn't a good enough example, what about his own son? Jesus suffered all the time. He suffered on behalf of others. What did it say when he saw the widow carrying out her, her son? It said he was moved with compassion. What what happened when when the devil tormented them in the wilderness? What happened to all the people who were constantly looking to take his life? He even had unanswered prayers. Did you ever think about that? In the garden. See guys, we can't, dumb, we can't take away the reality of Scripture. He was praying, God, if possible, take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. If we're in this for the good times and the answers to prayers, we'll find a way out. But if we're in this because God is ultimately worthy... Because there's nothing else in this world that we desire except for God then we can sit beside Job in the ashes and in pain and say, though you slay me, yet I will trust you. Because not a hair of my head will fall to the ground that you don't notice. There isn't a sparrow that will go hungry today that you don't know about. Everything is going right according to plan. If the author of our salvation was perfected by the things that he suffered. That's Hebrews. Do we think our perfection will come in some other way? And I fully believe in the word that we've been taught all these years. We walk by faith and not by sight. We know the plans that he has to prosper us and give us a hope. But let me ask you something. When Jesus was walking with Peter and John on the beach and he said, Peter, when your time comes other people will carry you where you don't want to go. Could Peter have gotten away from that? I imagine he could if he would have denied Christ. But at Peter's death, not only did he not deny Christ, the way I understand it is he refused to be crucified on the same kind of cross as Jesus because he didn't count himself as worthy. We are supposed to be dying all day long and we aren't supposed to ever give up hope this wasn't part of my notes but I was reading it the other day in Judges and uh, I don't know if it's going to take too long to go through in the the land in Judges in the first three chapters it talks about in the beginning of chapter 2 it says he calls all the people together and, and God's wrath falls on them because they had moved into these territories with people in them they hadn't driven everybody out like they were supposed to. It said that there were some people too strong for them, yet when the Israelites lived in the land and they became strong enough, they just coexisted. But then you read a little bit farther down, and it says that God left and even names. He goes so far as to name the particular tribes that God left. And the reason for it, he said, was to teach their children to do war. So I was immediately wondering, well, how does God's wrath fall on a people for saying you didn't win all the battles? And yet, over here in the next chapter, it says there were people that they weren't going to win. There were battles they couldn't win. If God picks a tribe and says these people stay so your children can know how to fight, then those people are going to stay right there. And so there were people in that land that God had already decreed were not going to be driven out. So why was he upset with the people of Israel? He was always upset with the people of Israel for, stop, for when they stopped fighting. Their sin was not in the lost battles. Their sins were in not thinking that they could overcome, for not wanting to overcome, for giving up and deciding what, that the space camp was better than what God had ultimately decreed. And so am I advocating that we give up what we've learned about faith and our confession, absolutely not. We hold on to the promises of Jesus Christ because they are our life. But brethren, don't think it's strange when you fall into fiery trials. Who is it that condemns? It's he who died. Yes, rather, him who was raised again and now sits at the right hand of God who intercedes on our behalf. And if I can take a second and be completely honest with you guys, because you guys are my family. If we take an honest evaluation, our last three or four years as a church, we've had a lot of unanswered prayers. We've had suffering. And I think that it was last week, we had some words last week about, and talk about timing, about unity coming through our brokenness. And don't be afraid of brokenness. Because God has a plan for brokenness. And I want to tell you guys that maybe maybe these tough times are not judgment, but rather mercy. We've got to keep fighting. We know his plans. We know how he works. We know what he wants. So we keep fighting. Even when it doesn't seem like it's working. We don't give up. We don't coexist. We keep fighting. We don't stop. Guys, we've all had dark nights. but Let me tell you about my Jesus. Okay? On dark nights, if he does it for judgment, he'll tell you why. I believe that with all my heart. We had a lady at church tell us that we, a little while back. We, we lost number five in our family edition, and they told us that. They said, get before God and ask, is there anything that we've done wrong? And if he doesn't show you, then you go and keep going. And I want to encourage you guys here in our battling unanswered prayers, get before God and ask him if this is a sin, and if not, keep going. Don't stop greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. All these promises, they're not meaningless. When he said, I'll get you to the top of Everest, when he said, I will change you from who you are, which is a very bad representation of Jesus Christ, into who my son was. He means it. But we got to keep going. we got to go. That's not a location reference. That's a heart. See, when hard times come and and we're not sure who to blame or what to do about them and we stop. That's the problem. Turn over to 1 Peter, uh, Peter 4. First Peter 4 starting in verse 12. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing has happened to you. I don't know about you, but I know there have been some dark nights when I thought a strange thing had come upon me. Where I stood at, when I was walking into a a courtroom and was for sure this time the angels were going to come to my defense, and yet they didn't. When I was sure that this trip, something miraculous was going to happen, and it didn't. And I thought it strange. And I was unprepared. But God in His mercy is so good. Verse 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, even in those fiery trials, especially in those fiery trials. Keep on rejoicing. God is at work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. When it doesn't seem like it's working, keep fighting, keep going. Don't stop. If it's sin in your life, I was thinking, when I was thinking about suffering... And I was thinking, one of the things that we say is, well, I sinned and I messed up and I know it and here's where I messed up and so I'm no good to God. False. There was a man one time who slept around, killed the evidence, and attempted to cover it all up. Now, if anybody was standing in line for God's wrath, it was that guy. And for nine months or however long it was, he lived with the guilt. He lived with the isolation from God's presence and he knew it because David was a man after God's own heart yet what was his response when Nathan the prophet came to him he admitted his guilt and Nathan said you've been forgiven and what did David do? Did he succeed the throne? Did he say I'm done now? I'm going to have to have Absalom step up because I'm no good to this kingdom? No. He went right on his face and asked God for mercy. For three days, he fasted and prayed for the son that God was going to judge because he was the product of sin. See, that is the theology that we're supposed to have. That's why David was a man after God's own heart because he understood when God says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. So you've messed up. Repent and move on. David did. I don't think I have that boldness. If I was in David's shoes, I don't know if I could have went and fasted and prayed for three days and asked God to give me the life of that child that I knew was a product of my sinful decisions. Yet David did. You know, I, in reading through the Bible, we a group of guys in church have been reading through the Bible. and and uh, reading through the Bible, I think my whole life I've grown up thinking, well, David was a guy after God's own heart. It's probably because he hung out in the sheep pens and stroked his harp. And he just, no, David was, David was a tough guy. I mean, there was at least two times it says he put the entire inhabitants of villages under a pick and axe. He was not a guy to mess around with. In fact, he was so bloody that God told him, you can't build me a temple. And yet in that man, God chose to say, that guy is a guy from my own heart. What was it about David? Maybe it was that. That view of God is ultimately sovereign. That view of God is ultimately in control of whether I make it or not. That view of God is, if God doesn't act, then I have no hope. And if God acts, then I have all hope. And so I want to encourage you guys, keep on fighting. Who is it that condemns? Because it's not God. Who is it that brings a charge against you and tells you that you can't leave the base camp? That you've tried that before? That you went down and volunteered someplace and it stunk and that, that's that? Or you went and you made a half hard attempt to try something and nothing happened and so you've been there and done that you've done the tracks you've done the whatever method and it didn't work so now you're free to sit wrong because for all the time that we sit we're not bringing glory to Jesus for all the time that we hide we're not bringing glory to Jesus we're putting our talent in the ground and covering up with dirt and waiting for him to come back and hoping that his descent to bring up his beloved includes the bottom of the mountain. And Jesus is saying, come up higher. Not so you can be somebody, not so that you can be special, not so that you can have a book written about you, but so that you can know me. And if that isn't enough to stir your heart to move, then that's where you need to start. See guys, we shouldn't just feel close to God at special occasions and seminars. We shouldn't feel close at certain trips and times of the year and special occasions and special worship services. God's presence was afforded to us as a 24-7 privilege in the death of His Son. So that's how we should treat it. And that's why Paul went so far as to say, "Whether you do, whatever you do in the most urbane, and the most simple things, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. How do you do that? How do I eat or drink to the glory of God? Well, that's what you're going to have to ask God for His grace to show you. But you, just because you don't understand it doesn't mean you're free from the requirement of it. Just because you don't see how that would work out in your daily life doesn't mean that suddenly you don't have to glorify God in what you eat or drink. But if you want to glorify God in what you eat and what you drink, you're going to have to die first. Because we stand between God's glory and His expression of His glory to a lost and dying world. The old phrase, you might be the only Jesus some people see today. And when I was looking at suffering, there was two reasons that stuck out. And the first one is that suffering is for our sakes. See, the whole idea of Christianity is all built on this thing, and it's change. There's a lot of theological terms for it, but it all can be summed up in one word, and that's change. It's change from something you were to something you're going to be. You can call it sanctification, justification. Those are just fancy words for change. And if you've lived for any time at all, you know that that change is not something you can work up. If you've ever tried and failed, then you know that you need Jesus. And so then Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it bears no fruit. You want to look like me? Then die. And that means when the night gets dark and the soil goes over your head, you've got to stay there. Do you really believe that God put you there? Under the soil where it's dark and dirty and doesn't make sense and you're not sure which way is up. Can you stay there? And trust that this is the process by which I bear fruit. So the first reason that we suffer is so that we can change. The second reason is so that the gospel can go forth. I mean, turn over to 2 Corinthians and Paul was a, a perfect example of suffering whenever he uh, started a laundry list of things he had been through we all thank God we weren't sent as missionaries so he was, uh... but really if, you, if, you, if you're interested to know more just read 2 Corinthians I, I, I went for a verse and I read a chapter and then I went back and I read the whole book and it's all writing to a church that is in the midst of suffering and telling them you're suffering, but keep fighting. And you're suffering, but so am I, and there's a purpose for it. So in verse seven, start of chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7, it says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. That's why we have to die. So here's how we die. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. See, there's a point to the suffering. It's not meaningless suffering. The suffering comes so that we can look like Jesus. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. And here's the reason. So that Jesus might be also manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, I suffer so that the life of Christ might be manifested in me. And that life might come to you. Verse 13, But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all these things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is a producing in us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are seen, which are not seen. But for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I want to call your attention up to verse 17, where it says, "Is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. So let's unpackage a little bit. We've been talking about keep fighting. What do we mean by fighting? We're not Israelites anymore. There's not a a foreign people or a native people that we're supposed to crush under our heel. So what are we fighting? Producing for you a far greater weight. Well, what was Paul fighting? In verse 15, he says, For all these things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. I think we fight in our ministry. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, I may have believed a lie. That's harder to say, isn't it? <laughs> Everybody's so loud on glory. See, guys, we've made ministry what I'm doing up here. Yet, yeah, if this is ministry, then there's very few of us that are actually called to ministry. But jump over to chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Why? He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself and not counting their trespasses against them. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, because of these things, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. This is all of us. This is any man who is a new creation. We are now ambassadors. We now stand between a lost and blind and dying world and say, this is what Jesus looks like. Is your Jesus worth exporting? For Christ, as though through God, we're making an appeal through us. We beg on your behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Be like Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. He sent Jesus so that we could be accurate representations of what Jesus looks like so that we could be ministers of reconciliation. And I think we've completely mistranslated, interpreted, understood the word ministry. I think it was a mistake to call someone stands up in front of people a minister. I think we should have called him a preacher. Because we're all ministers. See, the problem is that we've misdefined missed, we've missed what ministry is and what ministry looks like. And so we don't even know how to do it. Because we think, well, I'm not good at standing in front of people. Or I, there's some things I can't do, and there's some things that I'm good at. But, but I don't think that's what Jesus meant when he said, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Now, here's a ministry of reconciliation. Go reconcile the world to God. Because if he did, then only a few would be able to do that. He said, if any man is in Christ. So, for the, the purpose of a clearer understanding, I want to use this as the definition of... When we hear the word ministry, and if you can find a better definition, then I encourage you to go for it, but this is the best I could come up with. Ministry is our participation in the glorification of Jesus Christ. Anytime we participate in the glorification of Jesus Christ, we are ministers. We are ministering. And every one of us, are very very good ministers you say no I'm not and I say haven't you learned by now to walk by faith and not by sight because it's the same spirit who raised up Christ from the dead dwells in you then he quickens your mortal body he makes you do what you couldn't do But we we could spend a lot of time and several messages on on just the idea of ministry what does ministry look like but But I just want to encourage you guys to think about that. How can I participate today in the glorification of Jesus Christ? How can Jesus be glorified through me today? Then I'm involved in the ministry of reconciliation. And it makes all the difference. Because, see, you can work the same job and go to the same school and be ministers. But what you can't do is be a minister under your own power. And some of you guys will go out to prove me wrong. But you won't get very far. Because you'll go out and you'll give it a try and it won't work. And you'll say, well, that's just not for me. But I want to tell you guys that you guys are very good ministers because Jesus Christ dwells in you. And that you can display Jesus to a lost and dying world in a way that brings His Father glory. Not because you did it, but because His Son dwells in you. Because the old man has died. All things are new. So don't sit in the base camp. And when suffering comes, thank God that your your light gets to shine brighter because light always shines brighter in a dark room. I just want to read you Romans 5, and I know we all have heard it, but It says, through this also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. We exalt, or we're excited about the fact that God can be glorified through us. And then in verse 3, it says, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. So we're exalting equally in our, our chance, the opportunity to exalt Jesus, to bring glory to Jesus. We're, we're thankful for the work that He's done, but we also exalt we exult in tribulations why because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance brings proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of god has been poured out within our hearts through the holy spirit who has given us and so i want to tell you guys persevere when you don't understand persevere when you think you know persevere because he's working in you a far greater weight of glory when, the, when all your relationships sour, when people don't understand you, when you get misunderstood, when, you're, when the kids in school make fun of you for making a stand, persevere. Because perseverance leads to character, and character leads to hope, and hope doesn't disappoint. But you've got to persevere to get there. We have to see God as ultimately glorious, or the world will never see God as ultimately glorious. See, God has ordained suffering, like Job, so that he can point to the devil and say, there's somebody who doesn't just serve me for the blessings. Does God want to bless you? Absolutely. Did God say any man who's forsaken house or lands in this life will also get houses and lands in this life? He absolutely did. Should we stand on those promises? Absolutely. All I'm saying is that when suffering comes, don't count it strange. We're so quick to analyze and, and try to figure out where the pain came from. And, and we should do introspection. We should search and try me, O oh Lord. Know if there be any wicked way in my heart. But maybe, that, just maybe, we're like Job. And God just wants to show that there are people out there that love Jesus more than life itself. That love Jesus enough to say, you know what? I'm standing right where I'm standing. Maybe that love Jesus enough to say, I've fallen down, but I'll get back up. See, that's what Job was about. Was about somebody, somewhere that would stand up and say, God is worth more. His wife couldn't do it, his friends didn't do it. But Job did it. And then Jesus came and he did it. And he did it better. Because he didn't even have friends sit by him. They all ran away and hid. And so I'm telling you guys, don't count it strange. And you keep going. How do you keep going? You keep going by participating in the glorification of Jesus Christ. You keep going by making the chief end the chief end and nothing else. We never stop. We don't shadow box. This isn't a game. If God lays something on your heart, go and do it. Glorify God in your bodies. Because that's what he paid the price for. That's why he died. So that he would receive glory. All the promises in Him, yes, and in Him, amen, absolutely. Should we appropriate and experience and enjoy all of the promises of God? Absolutely. Absolutely. Keep fighting. And as you fight, ask God to allow you to participate in a good way in the the glorification of Jesus Christ. Say, Jesus, I'm really bad at this, but that's right back where we started. Of course we're bad at it. We're awful at it. We're so bad at it that we have to die to get out of the way so that he can do it. That's how bad we are at it. Young people, don't get discouraged. You guys will go through hard times in school and misunderstanding with parents. Just keep fighting. And older people who maybe saw God move a long time ago and wonder where it is now, keep fighting. And younger people who are waiting to see God move right now today, keep fighting. Because it's all, in the end, it's all about his glory. We need to stand with those three Hebrew boys who said, you know what? If we walk into that fire and we die, we'll do it ministering. What do I mean by that? We'll do it participating in the glorification of Jesus Christ. Did they glorify God in their suffering? Absolutely. And at the end of the day, was Christ exalted over all the nations of the world because they, they chose To see God faithful. Because they chose to say, you know what? Even if it doesn't work, I'm still walking right in there. Oh, death, where's your sting, guys? There is no fear in love. And if you read these verses in Romans 8, it's all about the love of God. It's the love of God that shines into our heart and makes us able. It's all about the love of God. It's not about our effort. It's not about the need to buckle down and get it better. It's about the love of God. That's why the Spirit intercedes for us. Because we can't buckle down and get it better. We've got to have divine intervention. We've got to have help. And so he provides help. If we can turn back to Romans 8. Verse 37. But in all of these things, we overwhelmingly, we overwhelmingly, I love that word choice. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Through all what things? What did Paul just get done saying? We are being killed for your sake all day long. And he says, but in these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our promise, guys. Is that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of, go- of the Lord. If it's about self-effort, it's about the strength of our faith, if it's about our ability to sustain, if it's about our ability to go and succeed, then, then we're going we're to be disappointed in this life. But if it's all about him and we just say, you know what, I'll go out on that journey without an extra staff, without a money bag, without a plan, then what does he say? He says, I'll take care of you. I'll be there. Even when it doesn't feel like he's taking care of us. Even when it doesn't feel like he's there. He still said he was there. He told us it was going to be this way, guys. He told us over and over again that we have to die. And it's not his fault that we misunderstood that to mean something else so i just want to encourage you guys to die and exalt in your death because then jesus can be exalted see when we lay ourselves down then all of a sudden jesus can be exalted and i really think that mr hamilton's prophetic word is coming to pass and it doesn't look a thing like what we thought it would what do you say he says a year of breakthrough And I think that the breakthrough is coming through brokenness. Do you trust him? Do you trust him that he knows? And he's got the best possible map routed to the top of Everest. That he's got the best possible way you can get there. So the only thing you're responsible for is you just participate in the glorification of Jesus Christ with all your heart, mind, and soul. Now, whether you eat or drink, you do it all so that he might be glorified, so that he might receive the reward of his suffering because he's worth it. You know, there's a great, that phrase comes from a great story of two crazy guys that jumped on a ship. You guys probably heard it. It's an an old missionary wise tale. I think it really happened, but um, two brothers jumped on a ship to go to a leper colony because there was no gospel in the leper colony. The only way on to the leper colony was to go and be admitted And there was no way back. And so you can imagine, especially for the Martins who just saw Caleb and Megan off, you can imagine seeing your your two boys, your two friends, headed off for the last time. You knew they weren't going to come back. And the last thing anybody ever heard from those boys was, may the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. If this is what it costs, so be it. I exalt in my tribulation. I exalt that I am counted worthy to lay my life down. I'm excited. I have the opportunity to choose pain, to choose the hard road, to choose to lay down my life so that He can pick it up, so that He can live through me. Because until He does that, guys, you're wasting your life. Until you do that, you haven't started moving. We're just playing games and going to church. I think God wants us to quit mentally assenting to truth. And to start literally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and with all of our hearts, living spiritual truth. And that goes for me. I'm reminded every day about how I'm not broken like I should be broken for what I should be broken for. And I'm far too preoccupied with my kingdom and my ideas and my best plans and my life not near devoted enough to just saying, you know what, I don't care about anything today except that you be glorified. And guys, if we want to see breakthrough, that's what it'll look like. So I want to encourage everybody, get out of the base camp. Get up on your feet. Go. The Father's running to you, not running away from you. If you guys want to come up and sing a couple of songs, we'll close in prayer. And, uh, Men, Heavenly Father, I ask that we are gripped with the reality of your words, that we are gripped with the reality of your promises, that not one word of your promises will fall to the ground unfulfilled, God, that all the promises are in you, yes and amen, God, and that you have made a way for us to look like you, and that you've made a way for us to participate in your glorification, God, and I ask that you teach us all how to do that better, God, that you teach us all what it looks like to be consumed so that our chief end is the glory of God, and the enjoyment of Him for Himself as He is, and who you really are, God. Grip us with Your glory, God. Grip us with Your image. Grip us with who You are, what You've done, and what You will do, God. And in all these things, God, guard our hearts against pride and arrogance and selfishness that wants to, to, to be excited about those things that help us, and disgusted with those things we don't want anything to do with, God. Help us. Learn how to lay down our lives. Pick up our cross and follow you. Teach us what it means to abide moment by moment in your truth and in your word, God. And and teach us what it means to die and have your son resurrected in us so that the world can see what you're worth. I thank you for your work in our lives, God. I thank you for this group of people, God, that you've given me the opportunity to be with, God. And I thank you for the enormous graces you pour out on us every day, God. I thank you for your words that never fail, God. I thank you for your goodness that never ends. I thank you for your mercy that's new every morning, God. And I thank you for the opportunity to worship together, to worship your name and be strengthened by each other, God, to grieve with those who grieve, to rejoice with those who rejoice, God. And I ask that you continue to knit us together into a single body that glorifies your name, God. That you would be exalted in our midst, that you'd be exalted through us and in us, God, that nothing would hinder the world seeing your glory through this group, through these individuals, God. And we'd be able to stand up and say, it's not our words, it's not our will, it's not our plans, but it's with the Father. It's the will of the Father, God. I thank you for your goodness and grace. I ask you to be with us now and watch over us in Jesus' name. Amen.